Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Chris Grosso. Chris is an independent culturist, freelance writer, spiritual aspirant, recovering addict, and musician, not necessarily in that order, who serves as spiritual director for the Interfaith Center, the Sanctuary at Shepherd Fields. He writes for the Huffington Post, Rebel Society, Origin Magazine, Mantra Yoga Plus Health Magazine, and he created TheIndieSpiritualist.com, a popular hub for all things alternative, independent, and spiritual. Chris's best-selling book, Indie Spiritualist, A No Bullshit Exploration of Spirituality, earned him praise from Ramdas, Tony Hawk, who is a skateboarding champion, in case you don't know, Ken Wilber, Publishers Weekly, and more. A self-taught musician, Chris has been writing, recording, and touring since the mid-90s. And I'm sure we'll be talking about music in this interview and many other things. First of all, welcome, Chris. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm honored to be here today. It's good to have you. I sometimes refer in my interviews and people who have interviewed me to the fact that I did a bit of drugs and all when I was a teenager. But if drug and alcohol use were scouting, I was a Cub Scout and you were an Eagle Scout with, with 100 <laughs> merit badges. <laughs> it's like, I can't believe how heavily you got into it all. And yet you came out the other side, I don't know about unscathed, but in a very impressive place. I really enjoyed reading your book. There's a lot of wisdom in it, a lot of sincerity yes. and humility. And I kind of wonder sometimes if perhaps we volunteer for these roles, you know, so that having gone through all that garbage, we're able to be much more helpful to people than if we hadn't. And it was, sure. it was sort of a brave thing of you to take on that yoke, that burden, and then be in a position to help others who might be going through the same. Well, thanks for saying that, because that's what it is all about for me today, Rick, is service. Like, I, you know, having come literally so close to death so many times, and the fact that I am still here, and I've seen so many people lose their life to addiction, I don't know why else I am still here, but, you know, enough sometimes has to become enough. And so here I am, and, and that's just all I want to do is help other people however I can. So Yeah. I know that 12-step programs have a, a very strong spiritual component to them. Yeah. I suppose that most of the people who engage in 12-step programs resonate with that and find it you know, meaningful. Do you think that addiction itself is some kind of a distorted spiritual craving, a, a, you know, a desire for spirituality that has gone awry somehow? I think it's a form of bypassing or trying to be a shortcut, you know, getting from here to here. I journal a lot and during my times of uh, using, which was a period of about, I don't know, over 10 years of my life in cycles, it wasn't a straight 10 years, but during the times where I would be so heavily lost in it, I would write and the recurring theme was an anger towards God. You know, where are you? Why aren't you here? And a feeling of loss and of separation. And a lot of the time I didn't know exactly what it was. It was just... You know, I was just writing it, letting it pour out of me. But I believe, you know, I look at so many people who have an interest in spirituality, yoga, things of that nature. You look at like Krishna Das or Jay Utal, and I don't know if they call themselves recovering, but they, you know, they don't do drugs anymore. They mm. had a run with it too. And a lot of people did. For me, and I think a lot of other people, that became the catalyst for us to aspire, you know, towards spiritual awakening, um, but in a more skillful means. I never knew that Krishnadas was the lead singer for Blue Oyster Cult until you mentioned it in your book. I, I never knew that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a little known fact. And it was pre, you know, Don't Fear the Reaper era. But uh, that was still pretty cool. Like, he was, he was a total rocker. 
I must admit that other than Blue Oyster Cult, I am completely unfamiliar with any of the musicians you named in your book. <laughs> I'm kind of more of the Beatles, Hendrix, sure. you know, that, that, that era. <laughs> I have a deep respect for those guys, too. Yeah. Hendrix actually came on my iPod when I was running yesterday on Shuffle. I, I love the classics. But mm. even though for some of the younger generation, it's, it's obscure for them as well. But it's just what I know, you know, so yeah. it's what I write about. Yeah, I was thinking, based on what you were just saying, that it, it almost seems like maybe this is a crude categorization, but it seems like there are kind of two main types of drugs that one takes if one is taking drugs. One is the kind that attempts to blot everything out, like narcotics and alcohol, and the other is the kind that tends to wake you up in one sort of way or not, like you know, amphetamines or LSD and psychedelics. Sure. I know some people... For some reason, this image comes to me right now of this guy who was a junkie that I knew. And uh, he was sitting in a park in Connecticut. It was 4th of July, so he thought he would do an LSD trip. And he had already been a junkie for some time. And he was just sitting there saying, man, give me my cooker. You know, I can't stand this. You know? mm, sure. <laughs> so was that a seesaw for you between kind of wanting to wake up and doing things which made you more aware of the world and then being too painfully aware of it and then wanting to blot it out again? You know, I, I wish I could say that was the case, but it wasn't. For me, I, you know, I was kind of a garbage pail. Alcohol was my main drug, but I was always ingesting whatever else was around mm. as well, all kinds of narcotics. And uh, with that came a lot of LSD and mushrooms. I mean, I've ingested those over a hundred times easily, wow. but I wasn't doing so in a, in a way of uh, trying to wake up. I was just doing them because I was- Getting I, kicks. Yeah, and I like weird things in life, and it doesn't get much weirder than that. <laughs> what I will say, though, is, and I write about this in the book, is the one time, the very last time I ever took any hallucinogens, I had an eighth of mushrooms that had been kind of sitting around for, I don't know, maybe a month. And I just, one day, it was a Sunday afternoon, I decided to take them by myself. I was living in Middletown, Connecticut, in an apartment, mm. and I'd never done acid or mushrooms by myself. I was really heavy into Ram Das at that point, mm -hmm. um, which I still am. He's one of my definite spiritual guides. But be here now, you know, I was just reading it and reading it. And so I decided I'm going to take these mushrooms, you know, and attempt to see the face of God, to enter the room with Christ and have a real amazing spiritual experience. The one and only time I ever did that with hallucinogens. This is the condensed version, but about three hours after that, it just, you know, it churned on me. And I'd never had what they call a bad trip on either LSD or mushrooms. Always great experiences. It just became too real, too heavy. And so for whatever reason, I called my parents. I don't know why I didn't call a friend, but my parents lived about 20 minutes south of me. And I told them, you know, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm on mushrooms. And my parents didn't know what that was. They're pretty straight-laced characters. And well, yeah, would you like spaghetti with that? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and so my mom says do you want us to call the ambulance? And I'm like, oh God, no, 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 no ambulance. You know, like that's just, that would just be the worst thing possible. So, and this is years into my addiction. They had seen me in the emergency room a number of times from, you know, alcohol poisoning and things of that nature. So they didn't know, um, but they came to pick me up. And when they got there, you know, I, I could barely even speak. And I just handed my mom my copy of Be Here Now. And I'm like, maybe this will help. And so we're walking out to the car because they're taking me back to their house to stay for the evening. And I remember looking up at the sky. It was probably like 7 o'clock and it was uh, fall or winter. Uh, so it was dark out. And I looked up at the stars and I just stopped for a minute. And I just said, it's all too real. 
Like, and, and that was, it was all, it was just too much for me. And so I got back to their house. I remember laying down on the couch and um, the Simpsons were on and I'm a big Simpsons fan. So that kind of started to bring me back down. Uh, but anyways, the next morning I woke up and came downstairs and there's my mom sitting there with be here now next to her. And she's like, I read the whole thing. I still don't understand. Like, you know, but that's what happened. The one time I tried to do that. Uh, so I'm not saying don't do that because I honor that, you know, even though I wasn't taking those hallucinogens in an attempt to wake up, I honor the fact that they certainly had, you know, they played a role in my consciousness expanding, no doubt about it. So I know people that are anti-drugs on the spiritual path, that they're pro, as with anything I say to each their own, whatever works for you. I still have friends that do drugs and can do so um, in a way that doesn't harm themselves or others. It's it's a, in a responsible way, if you can call it that. And, and that's cool. Like, I can't, unfortunately, and I have to honor that. Yeah, I interviewed a, a guy. It was part of a group discussion on ayahuasca and psychedelics mm -hmm. and the potential role they might play in, you know, spiritual and individual and planetary spiritual evolution. Did you watch that one? No, I did not see that one, but I love the work uh, with ayahuasca that's being done around recovery and just healing in general. Yeah. In any case, it was like one of the guys was this fellow named uh, Christopher Bosch. Mm -hmm. And in preparing for the interview, I listened to a series of talks he had given. And it completely changed my attitude toward LSD in a way with major provisos because I found him to be one of the most clear and articulate and deep thinkers I had ever listened to. Mm -hmm. And he had done at least 100, if not more, very high dosage LSD trips, but yeah. under, under very careful controlled conditions. Sure. And he had gone, he wasn't doing it for kicks. And right. he, he had gone very deep and had incredible, profound levels of insight. So never say never with, yep. with regard to just about anything. But on the other hand, if I were advising some young person who was just sort of getting interested in spirituality, I think the last thing I, I would say to them is, well, go try LSD. You know, because there, there's so many more safe. And say, I think safety first is a really important motto in this whole right. spiritual field. So many more safe and, in the long run, speedy ways of fostering your evolution, even though you yeah. get, a, get a quick kick in the pants from something like LSD. Sure. A quick, quick kick in the pants is not necessarily the best way to start, but definitely can open your eyes. You know, there's a story that Ram Das tells about um, talking to Maharaji and Maharaji's talking about the experience of LSD or any kind of psychedelics. And he says, of course, that will get you in the room with Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's wonderful. But you're going to have to leave. Yeah. You know, the goal is to get there and be able to stay there, which you can never do by a means of, you know, such as LSD or, or any other yeah. synthetic or natural substance. So I remember yeah. my, my realization was... Holy crap, you know, the world depends upon how you see it. It's not the same for everybody. That was, right. like, that was like the key right. realization. So I thought it's all about changing your perspective. And, you know, then I kind of screwed around for about a year and then finally realized that screwing around wasn't the way to really change my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> but on from there, you know. Right, sure. We live and learn and, and that's what, you know, it's, it's all part of the path. It's part of our dharma, you know, what we're living in the moment. So do the best we can to learn from it and move on. So in, in your case, though, without getting too dark about it all, I, I think it would be useful for people, in case anyone's going through something similar, to realize just kind of how seriously messed up you managed to get yourself yeah. be, before kind of turning things around. Give us a few highlights that you think would, yeah. be, that would be helpful to people who might be going through similar difficulties. 
Right. Yeah. And and so I, I do write pretty uh, candidly about that in the book. I don't do it in a gratuitous way, um, trying to glorify addiction. But I, I really do put that out there because I want people who are reading who aren't familiar with just how dark it can get. You know, maybe they can get a better insight as well as the people that are going through it and feel hopeless like I know all too well about to see that you can get through it. So, God, I... The long short of it is by the time I was 23, I had already been to the emergency room as many times, if not more, you know, uh, at that age. So 23, 25 times due to alcohol uh, consumption and just the way I was living. You know, there were a couple of suicide attempts in there. I mean, very minor, feeble ones, more cries for help. But still, the fact that I was willing to, you know, even do that and they landed me in psychiatric Wards. Yeah, you were uh, hacking away at your wrists on one of them. Yeah, and I still have the scars. You know, right. I um I consciously decided to leave them here just just as a reminder. Uh, best case scenario, if I decide to pick up again, that's the best case scenario for mm. me. So, um, they're they're a reminder. But you know, I I was diagnosed with gout by the age of twenty three, which is and it's in basically an inflaming. It happens in, for me in my in my toe area. Some people get it in their it's joints essentially. Mm-hmm. But it's due to kidney functioning, poor kidney functioning from alcohol consumption, you know, or for some people, usually people, if they're diagnosed with it, aren't diagnosed till 50 or 60, you know, like it's, it's from a a lifelong journey of just drinking heavily, eating poorly. And I was, you know, the doctors couldn't believe at 23, I was diagnosed with it. And that's just... Henry VIII had it. Right, exactly. Yes. So I mean... (laughs) From being a glutton, I suppose. Yes. Yes, Mm. absolutely. I, I went into my first detox at the age of 24. I, I would say I became a full-on addict around 1920. I started experimenting at 16 or 17, which was actually late for where I was going to high school. A lot of people started earlier, but I was in the punk rock hardcore scene and very much involved in straight edge, which is a drug-free lifestyle. And then I just kind of got bored of that and wanted to experiment. So anyways, I, I crossed that line from experimenting to abuse to addiction around, you know, 1920. And it was at 24 that I was in my first detox. And then it went into a 28 day rehab program. And then that started a cycle where I would go through that. I would get clean for about a year, end up relapsing again, go into a detox, another rehab, get clean for about another year and on and on, you know, and with each relapse, things were just getting worse and worse. It was, you know, that's where the the couple of suicide attempts came in and, you know, the hopelessness just got deeper and deeper. And, you know, part of the problem was during those times of recovery, I wasn't really doing the inner work that I needed to be doing, you know, and I was attending like meditation groups, 12-step meetings. I was reading books from wonderful spiritual teachers, but I wasn't I wasn't willing to get vulnerable, you know, and intimate with my pain and my heart and actually touch that. I was, uh, I was still scared. So I was basing my wellness on the material level. You know, I would get the job back, the car, the girlfriend, the apartment, whatever. And that's all I needed. You know, I was doing okay by society standards, but internally I was still a wreck and I wasn't working on that. So, you know, the seeds were being planted, but I, I wasn't really doing the work to till that soil, you know, to, to help them blossom. So you know, a couple of other just quick things that come to mind. There was one point. Before I forget to ask you, uh, unless you want to talk about this a little later, it would seem that 12-step programs and all would be kind of making you do the inner work. And meditation is kind of an inner work sort of thing. What was it that 
unless unless we're getting ahead of your story, what yes. what is it? What was it when you finally started doing the inner work that was different than when you had not been doing it and and yet had been going to twelve step programs and sitting in meditations? You're right. The foundation, like the twelve steps, they're the path, you know, to freedom for an addict. It's not the only way, but it's one pretty tried and true way that's worked for a lot of people. So I don't want to sound like I'm advocating for anything over the other because people find it in yoga and church, and and that's wonderful. For me, um, I I wasn't really working the steps, you know, like I was yeah. I was kind of talking the talk and doing a bit of work, but I wasn't really going inside. You know, there there is so much pain that that was in there, and that some of it's still in there for sure. Of what I had done, what I had done to others, what I put my family through, what I allowed myself to go through. There was. You know, and there's so much that I don't even know about from blackout drinking. A story is like a few years ago, my mom was telling me, and I had no idea. This happened probably six or seven years ago. But a couple of years ago, my mom was telling me a story when I was at their house blackout drunk. I didn't know about this till that day she told me, but I was also on benzodiazepines. You mix those with alcohol. It's just a, a bad, bad situation, which I'd done in the past. It can lead to death. And so my father had come. Well, and what do those do for you? I was prescribed those for anxiety. Oh. Um, they, they're basically, you know, they just help calm you down. Though the catch-22 is I only had anxiety because of the amount I was drinking and the way I was living my life. So <laughs> it was a vicious cycle. Yeah. But you mix those with alcohol and it just, it, it expedites that situation uh, immensely. So my dad had confiscated them and um, I guess I'd taken a large knife, a kitchen knife out of their drawer and I went out into the driveway and I held it to my throat, threatening to kill myself if they didn't give me the pills back, which of course he did. And then I just took off and they found me a few hours later sitting on a grassy knoll just out of my mind. And I went to the emergency room and, and that's another story. So you were that, the one who shot Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, for all <laughs> from, I know. From the grassy knoll. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, these are the kinds of things that are, so when my mom told me that, it, it just, my whole body got, you know, sick and twisted up. And she didn't share that with me in a way that she wanted me to feel that way. We sometimes talk about these things as our own kind of healing process and letting them out. But my goodness, like what my body started to go through hearing this, you know, and I just knowing that those kinds of things happen in my life and, and I had no idea they happened. So these are things that I was very scared to work through, you know, this kind of pain. It's not an easy pain to sit with. Yeah. So that was my problem. You know, that's what kept me in this cycle. And I don't know really why now, I guess for lack of, you know, more insightful answer, enough had just become enough. You know, I just didn't want to keep going through that cycle. The fact that I had not died or I'm not dead at this point, I have to believe there's a reason for that. Especially when I've seen so many amazing people lose their life to this disease and who have gone through significantly less than I have. My my last time, about a little over three years ago, my last relapse, I woke up in a jail cell from a blackout drunk. I had no idea how I'd gotten there. The, the long short of that is I, I was pulled over 45 minutes from where I was living at the time. I was doing 108 miles an hour. I blew a .33. I, I mean, I was completely out of my mind. Explain what that means, a .33. Oh, I'm sorry. So the legal limit, that's a blood alcohol content. So mm-hmm. the legal limit in Connecticut, and it's pretty similar throughout the U.S., is a .08. Mm-hmm. And that's basically like a beer, if that. And it's hard for me to talk about that because I have a lot of shame. So you're four times that. over the legal limit. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was blackout drinking and wow. driving 108 miles an hour. Like Jeez. the fact that I did not kill anyone else, 
that's not easy for me to sit with, you know, that I, my life had gotten to that point. You know, I'm, I'm certainly ashamed of that kind of behavior, mm. but you know, that's something that happened in the past and talk about a wake up call, literally waking up in that jail cell. And it wasn't the first time that it, I'd woken up in a jail cell from a blackout, but it was the first time that had happened. My hope was just gone. I was, I ended up losing my job. I was in detox and I missed my brother's wedding where I was supposed to be the best man. It was just, I was ready to die. You know, it was just horrible. But I went to New Jersey. They sent me out of state to another, like probably my fifth or sixth rehab. And what changed for me there was about two weeks in, I actually was introduced to the book Finding Freedom by Jarvis J. Masters. Um, I'd heard of him. Pema Chodron talks about him often in her talks, but I'd never read his book. And the clinical director there gave me the book and a story about a man on death row in San Quentin who's still there. And he found redemption and uh, took his bodhisattva vows and now practices a life of non-harming. And he's there, by the way, he's a completely innocent person on death row. He was sentenced to jail for a crime he committed, but he was accused of sharpening a spear used to kill a guard. So anyways, California is finally reopening that trial, which is wonderful. And I just like to mention that because it, it pains me that this man is there, you know, wrongfully imprisoned, as so many people are in the world, not just the US. But anyways, I read that story. It really helped me kind of kick my own ass, you know, like pull myself up off the pity pot and realize, wow, here's this guy that's able to find hope and redemption in the most desolate place almost in the world, probably. And here I am in a comparatively cushy rehab, you know, who am I to really sulk about that? I, yes, I, my life is, was not great at the time, but in comparison, that's just what I needed to hear. And here I am over three years later. One thought that I kept having in reading your book is that it amazes me that one can marinate the brain in so much alcohol and other poisons and yet be as intelligent and articulate as you are. It's like, <laughs> yay God, you know, for giving us such an organ that is so tolerant of, of abuse and yet still highly functional after stopping that abuse. So yeah. uh, I just appreciate the fact that we're there's a lot of forgiveness in, in, in that, you know? Oh, so much. I mean, my whole body, not just the brain, but my kidneys, my liver. I mean, I, I used to, they, they would throb in pain. I would, yeah. sometimes my urine would be brown from so much blood. I mean, it was wow. just horrible. But that's how amazing our bodies, you know, are and, and what grace in that, that I didn't get cirrhosis, you know, that my liver has healed itself. And yeah, it's just a miraculous, miraculous thing for sure. There's one realization I had which, on the last night I ever took a drug, which I wonder if you've had also, and it, it became kind of a guiding principle for me, which was that um, I was on acid. My friends had gone home. I was sitting in the basement, in my basement bedroom in my house, and uh, the dog had gotten out and was barking at the garbage man. My father sent me running around the neighborhood trying to catch the dog. I finally got back home, and my mind was whirling, and you know, I sat down and I read Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which I Great think, book. Yeah. And yeah. I was just to kind of steady and focus my mind. And as I read it, something really hit home to me, which was, wow, these guys are really serious and I am really screwing around. And if I keep screwing around like this, I'm going to live a miserable life. Mm. And so, okay, well, that is, I thought the only way out is up, or we might say, mm. we might say in, you, you can't get off the wheel. There's no sort of 
I mean, people try to commit suicide, but I think you and I know that, that does, that's no end to anything. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, you don't stop, and you just yeah. probably make things worse. Right. And, and right. I think I realized that even then, and I wasn't suicidal, but, but I, I felt like, all right, I've just really got to move in an upward direction, to just metaphorically speaking, and things are going to get better. And it's like if you're standing in the middle of a great big mud hole, and you say, I want to get out of this mud hole, and somebody outside the mud hole says, well, take a step. And, but you would say, well, but you're asking me to put my foot in the mud again. And he said, but yeah, you're moving toward the edge of the mud hole, so just take a step, and then take another mm -hmm. step, and then take another step. And at, at a certain point, you'll be out of the mud hole. So, yeah. so that was kind of my orientation, and it's, it's been like a guiding principle ever since. I think that's so well said. You know, I, I feel like as humans, and going back to your question earlier about, you know, using drugs as, as a means to get there, at least for me, I feel like the natural tendency is to go higher. You know, the um, the evolution or the eros, whatever you choose to call it. You know, it's that, that spirit within us, our, our souls, you know, that want to continue to awaken to themselves. And and at least for me, that's that's how I feel it was and I didn't know what to do or, or how to skillfully do that and frustration set in and you know it's like I, I, I felt that indwelling presence but I did not know how to get in touch with it even though I was reading these books and trying the practices and, and whatnot and I think a part of it was the fear you know because of course we have our ego nature and, and to really fully I guess spiritually awaken is the ultimate death of the ego and, and I'm not here to bash the ego or say it's terrible, it's great, whatever. But, you know, it's part of the awakening we go through, you know, and, and there's so many factors to take into consideration as we're going through this whole process. A lot of trappings, but again, as I said earlier, cliche, but you live and you learn and you just keep moving forward or upward or inward. Yeah. And it's such a wonderful adventure. Yeah, I mean, what could, what could be more fun? Right. I mean, there's there's no end to, you know, ex what was it T.S. Eliot said? Well, actually, his phrase, and I think you quoted him in your book, didn't you? Uh, that the end of all our seeking will be to arrive back from where we started and know the place for the first time. Right. Um, right. But I, I would argue that maybe there's an end to seeking because you do sort of arrive at that ground state uh, yep. and uh, you rest there. But even then, that's not the end because, well, I was listening, you know who Rupert Spira is? I know the name, but I don't know... Yeah, work. he's Very a smart. really cool guy, spiritual yeah. teacher, and uh, he was giving a talk he, in response to the question, you know, when self-realization has happened, is there still growth after that? And his answer was, well, on the level of the self, on the level of pure being, there wouldn't be growth, because how can that change? But, right. uh, but you're a person, you have a mind, you have a body, you have senses, you have all these faculties, and there's no end to the refinement of those. And he went on to you know, mention a couple of lame brain things he thought he had done even after his realization, and, and he said, you know, had I been more clear in terms of my relative functioning, I would have perhaps done differently. When I say that it seems like it's a never-ending exploration, there's, you know, once one horizon has been reached, there's always room for enhancement and refinement. And that's, that's not like, oh God, I gotta keep going. It's more like, oh boy, more to explore. Right, yeah, absolutely. And I think seeking is, can, well, it does keep us stuck, you know, identified as the seeker. You know, we, we're caught in this seeking cycle, which even to this day though, I still get caught up in, you know, I'll, I'll read books like, how am I gonna find this? And, uh, and then I, I catch myself doing it and I kind of am able to laugh about it. But, you know, because the 
absolute end of the spectrum, it, it's already perfect. It already is what it is. And, you know, it's intermingling with this relative reality that we're at. But the trick is finding that middle ground. And, you know, even as we learn to rest as witnessing awareness, you know, that so we kind of detach from this egoic self, even that's not the end. We're still not fully non-dual or completely merged. And and on and on it goes. You know, I love when Krishna Das will talk about this stuff. He just kind of, he laughs about it. He's like, you know how many times you've been born already? And you know how many times you probably have left to go? Like, just relax. Let it happen as it's going to happen. Do your best to do what you can do. But just just chill out, like, you know, and, and be easy. Even it said after the Buddha awakened, as you were you were saying, you know, after you awaken, there's still karma that's that's playing itself out. You know, it's I forgot who said it, but... It's like a fan, and once you turn the fan off, the blade yeah. still keeps going. Yep. Yeah, stuff still plays out, but you're no longer attached to it. And the you that's no longer attached to it is not the individual you. It's not like Chris Grosso is no longer attached right. to it. It's pure being is unattached in its, in its nature right. anyway, you know, but you, the identification has shifted. So it's, right. not, it's not like just, oh, I'm Chris Grosso having... I'm sorry, I'm saying, I'm saying Grosso, she's just corrected me. <laughs> I'm so used to it, it's fine, don't you worry about it. Just want to clarify this thing about witnessing, because, or detachment, because a lot of times people take that on a relative level, and, and, sure. and if they try to become detached as an individual, they just get impractical in life. But true attachment, detachment rather, has to do with the natural state of being as unattached from the relative world. And if you're, you're grounded in that, you can be fully dynamic right. um, and yet unaffected by the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, you know, unattached yeah. to the fruits of action. Right. And I think a lot of people tend to get caught up in that, especially once they start to have the awakening experiences where, you know, they start to see the, the impermanent nature on the relative level. They start identifying more with that absolute nature, which I understand that's, you know, that's the, the infinite part of ourselves. But, you know, in the two truths, it's two truths. It's not one truth more than the other. This is just as much a part of it as the rest. But yes, we, we anchor into a different way of perceiving and experiencing. And so things start to, our experience, I guess, starts to open up and be a bit more spacious. Yeah, it, it's not to shun the body and, and material things. It's just you're starting to experience and live a bit of a different way. That's all. All along you thought you were just a wave. Now you realize you're the ocean, but you're also the wave. Because, exactly. And the ocean. Both, yes. Both and. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a bit more now. We haven't really talked too much about, okay, so you woke up in a jail cell. You had been really plastered. You almost killed yourself. And you went into rehab, and, and then you got inspired by this guy who's on death row, and you've been clean ever since then. Yeah. So um, I don't think we quite nailed how you began to really do the inner work and face the more painful things, and what sort of practices or, sure. or techniques or whatever it was you have been doing really began to work for you and, and got you solid, more solidly on the track. One of the first big things for me was after reading that, I felt like so broken going into this rehab. That was the gift of desperation, they call it in 12 Steps. I had never been this completely broken. I had experienced plenty of hopelessness, but never to the point where I didn't think I would come back from it. There was always kind of a little flame of hope, you know, albeit small, but it was like, all right, something internally knew I was going to come back. This time it didn't. It, that hope was gone. I really didn't think I was going to. So I think there was a, a really big shift in me when that happened. And 
from that point, finding this hope again, which I truly didn't believe I was going to, and experiencing the grace that came along with that, a big part for me was really and truly learning to surrender as best I can my, my self-will. What I started doing, and I still do to this day, is before I meditate, I just make a very simple prayer or aspiration that I am helped to lay my myself, my egoic self aside as much as possible so that the spirit, whatever you want to call it, that will can be done through me and I can be of the greatest service to others. Make me an instrument of thy peace. Yes, truly. Prayer of St. Francis. Right. Yes. Very similar. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had, I had said that before, but never with a completely open and, and sincere heart. And even though I still say it today, there will be days where two minutes after it, I am right back in the driver's seat and here we go, you know, but a lot of the days are much better and I, and more frequently I will catch myself and bring myself back and, and really look at why am I doing what am I, what I'm doing? You know, is it really aligned with integrity? And I can't say it always is, but I can say that I'm doing the absolute best I can and each day it does get better and better. So besides that, that's the big thing for me is every day. Every morning without fail, I make that intention before I do anything, before I meditate and go on about my day. Mm -hmm. But then I started really Im Im bringing in practices that put me more in touch with the pain. And a big one for me, years ago heard on, I don't even remember which one, but one of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's audiobooks, he just simply said something about holding our pain in the way a mother holds a newborn baby. And I don't think he really went much more into it than that, but I kind of develop my own practice based on that. And that's a teaching, you know, that he was bringing back from the Buddha from, I don't know where exactly, but so this practice that I do now is something instead of pushing, you know, our, our natural tendency as humans or most of us as humans is to suppress our pain. We don't like disease, discomfort. It's just, it's not fun. But by doing that, we're keeping ourselves locked in that cycle. We're just pushing it down and it's still there. So for me now, when it starts to come up, whether it's thoughts, I notice first or emotions that, you know, they're always interrelated. But when I become aware of them, if I'm able to, I will take a moment and close my eyes and, and really become intimate with them and let them say what they're saying. Let the feelings feel what they're feeling. And once I feel like I've sat with them and really become very, again, intimate with them, I will mentally let them know, like, I aware, I'm aware that you're there. My heart is completely open to you. I am here to be with you as long as you need me to. And I will picture myself like Thich Nhat Hanh said, holding it, you know, holding these emotions, wrapping them in a blanket and holding them close to myself the way a mother would a newborn baby. For some people, I, I've talked about this quite often. And for some people, that's great. For some people, it feels a little too intimate. So for them, I say, just imagine it in a rocker, a baby rocker, you know, still there, but it's not as close. And what I find is by acknowledging and embracing and opening my heart to the, this pain and in these emotions is that almost every time within about a minute or so, they just naturally release themselves. And so that's been a really big, big practice that I use when things come up. Just the, just the looking at instead of, you know, shying away from that's that's what I was doing for so many years in drugs and alcohol. And sometimes today I still get caught up in it and I will find myself occasionally eating unhealthy and just eating my emotions away. So it, I'm not perfect at it by any means. Mm -hmm. But again, you know, it's, it gets better with each passing day. It's, it's, it's a work in progress. But that's the big practice. But then bringing other things in like loving kindness meditations and just truly 
trying to better myself as much as I can for the betterment of other people, trying to be as selfless as possible, mm-hmm. karma yoga, things of, of that nature. So That's great. I think I heard you mention that you actually sit and meditate a couple of times a day, like even for oh, yeah. as long as an hour or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I will sit twice a day for an hour, um, but or sometimes I'll sit for 20 minutes. I try to do an hour just because that's what I like. Um, so what's happening during that hour? What are you doing? Um, it's usually just a mindfulness meditation where I will sit, you know, on the breath, often in the belly. Sometimes I'll mix it up in the nose, but it's usually just, you know, like a Vipassana, just sitting there mindfully. And sometimes it'll be an hour of just thinking, 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 or sometimes it'll be an hour where I will come back and I will, you know, I've just, I've gone to that almost causal realm, you know, where it's just Mm. gone, but it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, I'm not doing it for the experience. I'm doing it to do it, to just continually get more in touch with the moment and what's happening. And that that's the formal meditation. But I believe, you know, once we are anchored into our practice, the meditation just doesn't just happen on the cushions. It, it comes with us throughout our day, you yeah. know, all day. And, and that's the beautiful thing. It helps us to act more skillfully and, and not always live from a place of reaction, you know, but rather a, a more conscious response to situations. So that in and of itself I think the practice of meditation is worth it, let alone though opening our hearts and minds to, or learning to open our hearts and minds in a more full way to other beings. Yeah, that's great. And I think one thing you just said is important, which is that if a person sits in meditation with the attitude of, I'm sitting here to have a good experience, they're going to end up half the time disappointed and, and maybe more than half. And and, sure. and really being very manipulative about it because you're kind of yeah. looking for something, you're trying for something, you're resenting something and so on. And so I think what you, what you said was, you know, I just sit there and do it, come what comes. And, but the, the value of doing it is really 24-7. It's not just, yes. not just what's happening on the cushion. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, sometimes I will have or anyone will have, you know, very blissed out, wonderful experiences. Mm-hmm. And that's great. But then they get attached to that. They want more and more. Yeah. And then sometimes there will be the very difficult experiences. You know, there are still plenty of times where a lot of that wreckage of my past will come up as I'm sitting. And it's not just the thoughts, but the accompanying, you know, physical discomfort, you know, the sadness, the anxiety. And it's not fun. But, you know, I just look at it the same way I would the blissful experiences. It's just part of mm-hmm. what's happening in the moment. No attachment to either. And, and it is what it is. Yeah, and we'd all rather have the blissful experiences than the difficult experiences. That, that's only human, but it's it's just uh, just to kind of hammer home this understanding that if you're trying for particular experiences in meditation and trying to exclude others, you know, and then yeah. then you're there's too much individual interference if you sure. if, if that's the way you're going about it. Yeah, and uh, it's not going to be as fruitful uh, yeah. as if you're just sort of innocent, like you said, come what comes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It just, we just stay no matter what. Pima Chodron talks about that, you know, just stay, just stay. No matter what, just stay. And that's not always the easiest. And there have been times where I haven't been able to stay. You know, I will have the intention of sitting for 40 minutes and 20 minutes goes by and I just, I can't. You know, it's rare. And, you know, in in the beginning that happened more frequently. And today it, it still happens occasionally, but not very often. But again, you know, you just, you do your best and you stick with it. Well, you know, I, I've been meditating for a long time, and, and I have the same experience even now, which is that 
sometimes it's just like you know is the time up you know I, I don't sure but what i find that sometimes if, if i'm in that kind of mode is if i just ease up a bit just relax you don't have to get yeah. up and leave maybe just lean back and and, mm. and just be a little bit more comfortable physically yeah uh, or just kind of whatever the nature of your practice is just kind of stop altogether for half a minute and just kind of let the mind and body settle and then pick it up in a more gentle way sure uh, then it can shift the whole thing a little bit yeah, very well said, yeah. uh, and and that's usually similar to what I will do when those when that happens. It's it is rare because straining days. can kind of creep in without you even knowing it. You can end yep. up sitting there just kind of yeah. yeah, yeah. You start out in a relaxed space, and then you'll catch yourself the tightened face. You know, the muscles, the shoulders are tightened, and yeah. without you even becoming aware of it as it's happening, it's right. yeah, it's a process. Yeah. And maybe there are some practices which prescribe that, but in, in kind of the way I've always gone about it, straining is counterindicated. You know, it's actually, mm. it's actually going to interfere. You, you were mentioning earlier something about nature and the, the kind of the natural tendency to want to evolve and so on and so forth. Yeah. And uh, I think that you know, meditation is a way of um, harnessing that natural tendency. Yes. And at least in the practices I'm familiar with, Effort, undue effort, strain, only gets in the way of what nature is trying to do. Right. You know. Yeah. It's kind of like you've probably heard this analogy. Like somebody's on a train and he's carrying his suitcase, and someone says, "Why are you holding your suitcase?" And he says, "Well, I want to make sure it gets to the destination." <laughs> and, and they say, "Well, the train will carry it. Just put it down. You know, just yeah. re just relax." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. And, and that's it. That's exactly it. But again, we have. We're so conditioned to want to, you know, be in control. It's part of our nature, and it's very, very tricky sometimes, all the time, almost to to really begin to relinquish that and let go. And and that's what I'm saying. Like that big thing that happened three years ago, where it was just that breaking point in my life, where I was able for the first time to really start to let go, like wholeheartedly start to let go. Mm. So that's that's for me made the world of difference. That's interesting. Let's, let's dwell on that a little bit more. Um, there's a point in the, you, you've read the Bhagavad Gita, I know you yeah. mentioned, mentioned it in your book. There's one commentary on the Gita that I read. Well, it's like there's this dialogue going on between Krishna and Arjuna, right? right. And there's a certain point at which Krishna, Arjuna's attitude seems to be, I got this, you know, I know what I want to do, which is I don't want to fight. But there's some interchange. And finally he says, I don't know what's right for me. You tell me what's right for me. And at that point, it's like, you know, as long as one feels that one can do for oneself, then one keeps trying. But there's a certain re point at which one realizes there's got to be a bigger power which is governing this universe. And, right. And perhaps I can just begin to cooperate with that. Right. And then, then the right outcome will, will occur. Right. Yeah, and that's why I look back and I, I can see such tremendous grace now in the suffering that I experienced because it was, for me in my path, that was the catalyst to that point. For me, I look around since the Big Bang and you look at the evolution and the conscious intelligence, the creative force that's brought us to the point where we are today. And for me, I have no doubt that it is a conscious intelligence. That's just my experience. Yeah. Um, and I respect, you know, I, I know a lot of Buddhist atheists who, who wouldn't, you know, really vibe with that. And that's cool. That's, that's their right. And, and, uh, and I would never argue that, uh, that they have that right. But yes, for me and my experience, knowing and, and really believing that that's, that's kind of what's happening here in life, 
why wouldn't I want to learn to start to surrender a bit of myself and open my heart and my mind up to that intelligence for guidance, you know, and I'm not saying that I'm going to start hearing the voice of, you know, God in my ear, though you never say never, but <laughs> for me, really, I, it's just... Chris? <laughs> Chris Grosso? Yeah, I might actually check myself back in if that ever happened, but, you know, like we, our hearts, we tune in there and there's, you know, our, our in our inner being is is really a wonderful guiding force. You know, I, I think when we're quieted, we can really tune in and our hearts resonate. You know, th there's a good feeling there in our heart center when things are, you know, when we're in alignment, in alignment with what we should be doing. And I know, at least for me, like I feel off in my gut. I really do when I'm doing things that aren't in alignment with what I should be doing. So a lot of people will judge me like, uh, on the tattoos or the music I listen to, spiritual people even, um, and say it's not spiritual, but I don't have that feeling in my gut that I should not be getting tattoos or listening to certain kinds of music. If for any reason that ever did happen, then I would honor that, you know, but I'm in tune to what, what my inner guidance is telling me. So that's what I'm going to roll with. You know, people can try to dictate to me what I should or shouldn't be doing, but they don't know what's happening inside. Only I do. Only you know for you. It's, you know, so yeah. honoring our truth is, I think, the biggest thing we can do on the path. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing about what's spiritual, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, for some people, $900 yoga pants is spiritual. Right. But, <laughs> so, <hey. laughs> but you know, I think it was Nisargadatta who said, uh, he was talking about something you were just talking about, which is nature kind of running the show. And he, he said, you know how for you, digestion is automatic and breathing is automatic and the, the flow of the blood in your veins is automatic and nature is taking care of those things. He said, well, for me, my whole life is like that. Mm, right. Beautiful. I mean, that's not an easy place to get to. I think if it was, more people would be doing it because once you do start to have that experience, you realize, wow, why did I waste so much time like trying to run the show? And then here I am saying like I, I've had that experience, but still I go back quite often and am trying to run the show. It's just that deeply ingrained. So that's why to me spiritual practice is peeling away those layers, you know, opening ourselves up to that Buddha mind or Christ consciousness or whatever, you know, we one would care to call it, to having that you know, be more of an experience rather than using spiritual practice to add on to our identity and put more stuff on top of us. You know how a few minutes ago you were saying how it's an evolving universe and since the Big sure. Bang there's been this sort of evolving thing happening with, yeah. uh, you didn't elaborate, but you know, stars forming, stars exploding, health, right. heavier elements getting created, eventually bodies getting created. So there's like this whole course of evolution that's been happening over billions of years and, you know, if you buy into the to the metaphysics, you know, we as individual souls have been coming along for however many lifetimes. And so we're a work in progress, you know, right. and if you feel like you're at a certain point where you're still seesawing between trying to be in control and relinquishing control and so on, right. that's just the stage you're at or we're at. And right. so, you know, you kind of have to be easy on yourself and, right. and, you know, realize that I'm sure you feel like you're better off than you were three years ago, and yeah. three years from now, you'll probably be better off than you are now. Hope and so. <laughs> I, I've always felt that way over, over the years. It's like if I could jump suddenly from where I am now to where I was 10 years ago, I'm sure right. I'd experience quite an unpleasant contrast, and yeah. hopefully going forward the same. 
So it's like you just have to sort of take it easy, take it as it comes, and just, you know, there's all this talk about being in the now. I, I don't think being in the now means not realizing that there could be an even better future. It just means enjoying and accepting life as it is now, not, right. pa not passing over the now for some glorious future, enjoying it now, but you know, fully open to the possibility that the future may be more glorious. Yeah, and I really appreciate what you said about being easy on ourselves in this process because that's something I fell into early on. You know, I wasn't coming to a place of still mind when I was meditating or I had these negative feelings coming up, all the things I thought weren't supposed to be spiritual. Mm -hmm. And so I would really like come down on myself, like you're not spiritual, like you're not having these experiences. I was really hard on myself. And so that's such an important point you made and something I try to tell people that are new to the path is, oh, first and foremost, work on cultivating compassion for yourself mm -hmm. in the process. It's not easy, but that in and of itself is one of the greatest things we can do because as we do that, then we can share that with other people. Such a, an important thing. You know that phrase, beginner's mind, that they, they yeah, say? Yeah, is that mind, beginner's mind? Yeah. yeah. I used to, when I first heard that phrase, I thought it had to do with a beginner whose mind might be, you know, scattered all over the place. Yeah. But I've heard it used in other contexts since then by people whom I consider to be very advanced spiritually yeah. and who say that, you know, relative to someone, we're all beginners, you know, yes. and like Adyashanti, he says, I always have the attitude that I'm just a beginner. Yeah. And, you know, he's a pretty advanced guy. Sure. So I think that's a healthy attitude. It's because it keeps one humble. Yeah. For one thing, you don't think, oh, I am just a, so cosmic. I'm just. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it also keeps you on your toes because anybody can screw up. Right. And I, I've always taken a part of that to mean like, as we have that beginner's mind, we are still open. You know, because the moment we think we have we have it all figured out, mm -hmm. you you'll often hear people say, "Well, that's the moment you're the farthest away from the truth." Yeah, and and I believe that's absolutely true. You know, because who has it all figured out? Right. You know what the Bible says: "Pride goeth before a fall." <laughs> so true. <laughs> Let's talk about music a little bit. I know that music is very dear to you. Um, yeah, yeah. I used to be a drummer myself. Nice. Back yeah. in the '60s. Nice. Yeah. And. Uh, up until about 1970. In fact, my band had tickets to Woodstock and we didn't go because we had some gig and we were going to go like a day late or something. By, by that time, you couldn't get in because the you know, New York State Thruway was a parking lot. Right. I still think, wow. God, that would have been so much fun. Yeah. My, my <laughs> wife thinks I'm living in the past. But, but anyway, <laughs> anyway, you've been uh, a musician. You're really into all kinds of music. It seems like you're very eclectic. And you mentioned all kinds of groups I've never heard of, but talk a little bit about music and what it means to you in terms of your spiritual path. Sure. My first spiritual experiences, though I didn't recognize them as such at the time, I think were really when I was about 13 or 14 years old and I was first introduced to punk rock and hardcore music. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a, in a rural town called East Haddam, so it was you know a very small town, very heavily sports-oriented, athletic kind of town. And I was a skateboarder who I was playing soccer, but gave it up for music to learn to play various instruments. And I was, I'd gotten into alternative music, the grunge scene, and, and, and I still like a lot of that music. But then I shifted. I met someone in a different school who was a couple of years older than me, and he introduced me to punk hardcore. And this music, I'll never forget the first time I heard this music. You know, it was the raw passion. It just, it like shattered me. I was just like, wow. And in a good way, like it, it, I felt the passion 
and these driving guitars and the singers. And, and then I started reading some of the lyrics and the lyrics were, you know, for the most part, kind of conscious lyrics talking about all sorts of different things. A lot of isms, you know, veganism, sexism, homophobia, you know, racism and shining a light on, on these things. And this is back in the early nineties. So for a kid in this rural area, you know, being introduced to this stuff, that was a big deal for me. And I just fell in love with it. And the reason I feel like that was spiritual, again, because I felt such a deep connection and a passion, and I still do to this day, I'm a huge fan of that music. The only other time I had such a deep experience with music was many years later, probably uh, 10 years later, maybe a few years, even more than that. It was the first time I heard Krishna Das and was introduced to Kirtan. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, I had heard about him through, as I mentioned, very heavy into Ram Das, and he would often talk about Krishna Das. So I went to a library and they had, I honestly don't remember which album it was, but anyways, I took it out and I put it on and just within like 30 seconds of him singing, the harmonium anchored me in, but then his voice, and I didn't know what he was saying, you know, because it was in Sanskrit, but again, the passion, the raw passion just hit me the same way that punk hardcore did. And it was just such a, a deep experience. And so years later, you know, I, I've, I've been in bands and I've played punk rock and indie rock and all that stuff and, and heavy, heavy music. And I've had transcendent experiences. You know, there's, there's still, I find a very transcendent thing happening there, but very much in the same way, I do a two-piece Kirtan project with my friend Alana and the same way I've had wonderful transcendent experiences in that, both performing and listening. Mm -hmm. So again, going back to what I was saying earlier about people saying, you know, certain kinds of music aren't spiritual. To, I say that's BS. You know, I say if it's spiritual for the individual listening, then it is spiritual, period. If it's connecting us with a deeper place. Like I listen to very heavy, droney music, a doomy music, and it has this repetitiousness about it. it. Like songs that are 15 minutes long, similar to Kirtan songs, and probably 80% of that will be music. I remember there were times before I was into spirituality where I'd be driving about 40 minutes. Uh, I was going part-time to college and I'd put these albums on and I would just lose myself in the music. And it wasn't mindless driving, you know, where we'll go somewhere and we'll be like, wow, I don't remember driving here. It was literally, I was just lost in this music and in this experience. And, and that's spiritual to me. So I, I find... And, and not just, I mean, I'm only talking about those two kinds of music, but I appreciate, you know, folk and jazz and, and all sorts of different things that anytime I feel that they connect with me on a heart level, which is pretty much any music I listen to, because that's why I listen to it, it's a very spiritual thing. Do you ever get into classical at all? Oh, yeah, sure. The more traditional like Mozart and Beethoven, mm -hmm. but um, yeah. absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I mean... Boy, lie down with a good pair of headphones and listen yeah. to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's yes. Like, yes. Unbelievable. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very deep stuff, for sure. And as you probably know, in the Indian tradition, music is considered to be a spiritual tool, a spiritual mm -hmm. path. And there's a whole science to the vibratory nature of sound sure. and how certain sounds resonate with our physiology in different mm -hmm. ways to produce different effects and so on. There are all kinds of healing modalities that involve sounds. Right. And, and even a mantra is a sound. I mean, it's, it might be just on the mental level, but thoughts are a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. So it's, right. a, it's a sound. And uh, in using it in a certain way, you can use sound as a vehicle for transcending. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like they teach in um, you know, TM. Yeah. You know, using that as the 
the bringing you down to that boundless potential mm-hmm. energy, that sound that anchors you. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever heard Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band mm. lying on the floor. There were some chemicals involved, but boy, really took me to a deep place. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the beautiful thing is music, no matter what, can do that. And I remember like even talking to Krishna Das, interviewing him a few years ago and asking, you know, and, and same deal, Beatles were very big for him. Lama Surya Das, I've talked to him, Beatles. The Beatles are a recurring theme, but, yeah. you know, it is the Hendrix and, you know, there was so much happening. You know, that was such an important time for music. You know, you look at what's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. It was huge. So, yeah. And it's still to this day, I feel is extremely relevant. Bob Dylan's lyrics, though written back then, you know, I think are just as applicable in many scenarios today as they were then. It's uh, timely and timeless. So Yeah. I would say because music has this kind of impact and influence, in a way, perhaps without even knowing it, musicians are like spiritual teachers or spiritual leaders. And filmmakers are too. I mean, I know you're into movies and there, sure. there's so many films that have a, a major impact on the culture. Yeah. And it's like the filmmaker is just serving as a sort of a conduit for some kind of knowledge to be popularized or yeah. familiarized in the culture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that's great, like music and movies. Again, hugely spiritual, even some TV shows. But I am a big fan of the aesthetic appeal. And I know I just mentioned Lama Suri Das, but I remember mm-hmm. this is, I don't know, four years ago maybe, I went up to where he lives up in Massachusetts to interview him. And one of the first things I remember is, you know, his assistant let me in and I was sitting on his couch. He was in the other room finishing something. And what I remember seeing was next to his TV, a huge stack of DVDs, you know, and not just, I'm not talking spiritual, like he had all sorts of stuff. And I was like, cool, you know, like this is great to see that, you know, a a big spiritual teacher, like that just watches normal stuff, you know, and it doesn't have to always be spiritual. Entertainment is great. Entertainment is fun. Like you were saying with music, there's a lot of stuff which might not be explicitly or overtly spiritual, but... If you have the eye to see it, it triggers all kinds of insights. Oh, yeah. Were you a Breaking Bad fan, for instance? Huge. I was actually just this morning talking to my brother about that because he he didn't watch it while it was on, but he, uh, he's he been watching it on Netflix, and yeah. he has only eight episodes left to go. That show is amazing. <laughs> I know. I even got the T-shirt. I have the oh, Los, Los, Los Polos Hermanos <laughs> <Yeah>. T-shirt. <laughs> oh, Gus. <laughs> yeah, that was great. But, you know, something like that, if the field is fertile, it's like that you, you watch something like that and it stirs up all kinds of yeah. like perspectives and insights. I mean, it's quite Shakespearean. Shakespeare, a lot of Shakespeare's tragedies might not be considered spiritual, right. but they, they have so much to say about the human dilemma and moral paradox and, and, and that kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and I love finding that, like movies like The Matrix, there's the obvious relation or Star Wars, you know, there's pretty obvious spiritual correlations, but mm-hmm. things like Breaking Bad, you know, or I'm, I'm into the show The Leftovers right now. I'm uh-huh. loving the show. It's on HBO. And uh, I mean, that is a bit more like has the religious undertones, but, you know, seeing these incredible things and, but like you said, having the mind to see the correlations and, and, and help open you up to other possibilities. It's, Everything in life, not just people. I, I really believe it all can be a teacher if we are open to it. So yeah, the lady I interviewed last week, um, Sally Kempton, is uh, yeah, you know her. She, yeah, she's she, great. Uh, Kashmir Shaivism, you know, and Tantra, and I have a lot to learn about that whole area. But from what I understand, there it's very much in line with what you've been saying, which is you, know, you don't just sort of dismiss the world as illusion. You realize that 
the world is infused with the divine, the, totally permeated by the divine. Yeah. And, and there's so many things that may not appear, quote unquote, spiritual at first glance, but they are as much divine as anything else and have something to teach us. I, I think that's so huge. I mean, you know, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. It, so the form arises from the emptiness and the form is also, you know, emptiness itself. There's something called uh, panentheism where it is, mm -hmm. God is in all things, all things are in God. Like that, that. that's what resonates to me. Like yeah, me too. seeing everything as an ornament of spirit, literally, like everything, God is in everything, everything in God. It's And, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It, it's everything. So yeah. taking that attitude and using that lens, it's tremendous for, for me at least for continuing to open my heart and remember like if someone looks at me the wrong way, you know, and, and that old Chris, you know, it still pops up like, you know, it's like, who's looking at me the wrong way? But now I'm in the practice of remembering the God nature in that person, yeah. you know, and, and it's just as much in them as it is in me. And so, you know, helping to calm the ego reactionary place down. Um, that's a huge teaching. God is looking me. at God. Yes, exactly. And in, who, in all things. Yeah. And who's to yeah. say that it's the wrong way? It's just the way God's looking at God. <laughs> exactly. That's, that is it right there. Yeah. yeah. And actually, if this is a fascinating thing for me, I think about this a lot, what you're saying now, as a way of understanding it more clearly, if we just look a little bit more closely at what's going on, and science helps us do this, hmm. look at anything. I mean, look at the tip of your finger, look at, take your glasses off and look at the plastic on a microscopic level. There is such perfect orderliness and structure and, and everything kind of working in a way that is incomprehensibly perfect and complex on, on a very subtle yes. level. And, and it's not only at the point you're looking, it's at every point in this vast universe. Right. And, and every point perfectly correlated with every other point. Anything that happens influences everything. Yes. And, and so it's like, if you look closely like that and think about it a bit, it's apparent that there's just a sort of a vast ocean of intelligence that's right. kind of all encompassing, all permeating and that it just seems to be moving within itself in currents. Right. You know, all, all the activities we see are like currents within that ocean. Yeah. And it's, it's all such a kind of divine, marvelous play that it's just jaw-dropping. Literally, basically incomprehensible, you yeah. know, to the human mind. But yes, but spirit moving within itself. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, mm. and, and that's the intelligence, as I was saying earlier, that like that's what I try to surrender to as best I can and yeah. allow that to be more of the guiding force. Because it's... From my experience and, and what I believe in many of the great sages and rishis, you know, mystics kind of agree on that, that that's what's happening. And I'm, I'm not very well versed in physics and I'm also not a big fan of the pseudo science that sometimes you hear. But, you know, the, the little bit that I do know where you get down to that Planck scale and the subatomic particles and, and, and like you said, it's, it's all dancing within itself. You know, yeah. it's a quantum soup, you know, of just potential energies. That's, that's what's happening. How incredible is that? Yeah. Definitely doesn't give you the impression that it's random little billiard balls just sort of bouncing along and somehow or other right. the, the universe gets created. That's, yeah. And again, like, and that's obviously many people's viewpoint and, and I, I respect that. I would never try to tell anyone else they're wrong, but I just, I don't know. Like, no, to me that, that does not resonate as any amount of truth at all. Uh, but again, that's just me. Well, I wouldn't experience. tell them they're wrong, but I think I'd want to have a lively debate about it. And, <laughs> and I'm always honing my ability to have that debate because I, sure. I just think it's so darn important. Because if we regard the world as 
dead, lifeless, material stuff that uh, has no intrinsic divinity in it, sure. then we, should, we can do whatever we want with it, you know? Just uh, rape the environment and uh, pollute right. it and throw plastic in the ocean and just on and on and on. I heard this the other day. Someone said that George Bush was being interviewed and they asked him if he had any concerns about you know, the impact of his oil policies might have on the world three generations from now. And he said, doesn't concern me, I won't be here. You know, <laughs> So if we actually see the world as divine and literally see it that way, not just philosophically, but if it becomes to, some, to whatever degree our actual living experience, then how can you harm it? You know, how, how can, yeah. it's like you're, well, maybe this isn't a good analogy with you, but it's like you're cutting your own body, you know? <laughs> no, I, I know what you're saying, yeah. And, and you're right. I, I don't even know what to say, but yes, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. So it's a really, it's one of these paradigm shift things that I think the, the, the culture is going through where we're shifting from this materialistic paradigm to a spiritual one. And it has huge implications for everything. Economics, environmental concerns, energy policies, everything. Yeah, it really does seem like we are at that kind of do or die stage, you know, of, of where we're either going to get our act together or we're not. And so long humanity, at least for this round, you know, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what will happen after that. But um, the beautiful thing is though we still have time yep. to, to, to make the difference. And, and it does seem like on the global level, it is spirituality and spiritual awakening and people's interest in it is continuing to grow exponentially. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, is it too late? Will that be enough? Who knows? Well, maybe a little touch and go, but I think it's rising to meet the challenge, you know? Yes. And, yeah, that's, I, and that's why it's rising. Yeah. And that's, you know, why this this work is so important that people are doing, you know, that for me that I'm, I'm so grateful that I didn't die and that I'm allowed to be of service and try to help other people do that. And, you know, some people give me guff for the way I write or that I swear in my book or things of that nature. But, you know, I'm trying to reach some of the, the younger generation of truth seekers that are just getting interested in this and in a way that I would have wanted to have been reached when I first started on the spiritual path. So, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's that's where my, my dharma lies and that's why I take the approach I take. Um, because especially this new generation coming up, you know, it kind of lies in their hands right now. So Yeah. Yeah, I have this um, good friend um, whose daughter I taught to meditate many years ago. Unfortunately, she was killed in a car accident. But her, her mother and I, this, this friend of mine, have stayed in touch over the years. And she has a grandson now who is a very bright kid. He has an IQ of 140. And he's just totally destroying himself and I, I you know, just drugs and alcohol and just crazy, sure. crazy behavior and can't hold a job and all that. And I, I told her about this interview I'm going to do with you and I told her I'm going to send her your book when we're cool. done. She's going to watch the interview and hope and pass it on to him. Cool. Um, but uh, it's like we all have our role to play and, and I think the role you're playing is critical for uh, a, a surprisingly large percentage of the population, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, that's been the most, the thing that's warmed my heart the most is that, and that's a big part of who I wrote this book to, are those people that are still struggling. You know, like I said, it's not specifically just a recovery book. It talks a lot about spirituality in general, but that, you know, my experience is so heavily rooted in addiction. You know, so to receive letters, not just from people struggling, but I've received a lot of or emails and, and such from family members, you know, that didn't understand what was going on. So to even be able to be of service to them and help shine a bit of a light on what maybe their son or daughter or niece or nephew is going through, uh, 
is wonderful. But then there's still the tragic stories. You know, I did my my first book signing um, here in town before the book came out, and I met a a really lovely older woman who was a friend of a friend of my mother's, and her son is was struggling with addiction, and so she came up, and I had a really lovely conversation with her afterwards, and she told me a bit about her son. And so I, I wrote my info down in the book and said, you know, I'd be happy to talk to him and mm. just let him know. So she, from what I believe, she must have given him the book and, and time went by. And unfortunately, it was a month, if that later, my mom let me know that um, her husband found him dead in their bathroom from mm. an overdose with the needle still in his arm. Wow. So that's just the reality of what's happening, you know, is that there's always hope, but it's... It's not always, you know, it's not Hollywood. It's not always a, a beautiful, positive outcome. People die. They do. And, uh, and these are not throwaway people either. I mean, no, there's no all. such thing as a throwaway person. But as right. you are a testament to, there's a lot of people who are, you know, lying in alleys and sitting in rehab centers and, yeah. you know, who are just brilliant spiritual Absolutely. people who are just kind of in a rut <laughs> yes oh yeah and the and you know everyone deserves to be helped out of that rut yes i mean th some of the most beautiful people i've ever met not just in rehab or detox but when i go back in and speak now at detoxes or rehabs and i get to chat with these people that are still struggling and um and i almost wish they could that and that's part of what i learned to do was hold on to that you know when you get to that place you're very vulnerable and very raw because you're so broken and, and that's a place that I've stayed in touch with, you know, as, as we've kind of already said, and that's been a big difference in my spiritual path. And so getting to connect with these people at that heart level, but what happens is a lot of people, like in my case, once they start getting healthier and getting back on track, that connection with that raw vulnerability starts to close up and our heart armor starts to cover it again. And, you know, we start to take our will back and boy, though, I, how I just wish, you know, people could really stay in touch there, but it's not easy. You know, it's a scary thing to be so intimate with our pain like that. But Well, I think if you kind of um, have an active spiritual pursuit like you do, right. it keeps tilling the ground, you know, keeps it, it, yes. keeps it soft. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's just a matter of staying committed to that, which it's easy to lose sight of. I was actually in a rehab thing myself for a while. I had already learned to meditate, but yeah. I, I decided I wanted to just do everything I could, you know, to get it together. And there was this attitude of, well, once an addict, always an addict, you know. And, sure. and you, you know, 50 years from now, you're going to be saying, I'm a recovering alcoholic or I'm a, sure. I'm a recovering addict or something. And I had to kind of scratch my head at that because even at that point, I was beginning to feel like I am done with that. You know, yeah. it's, it's behind me. And, yeah. I, and you don't want to get cocky and think, oh, it could never happen to me again. Right. But, but I really felt like I am feeling so good all the time, much better than drugs ever made me feel temporarily, yeah. that I can't imagine taking them because they'd make me feel worse again. So why right. would I want to make myself feel worse? You know, it, it was like, you know, poking your eye with a stick or something. <laughs> why, yeah, right. why would you want to do it? And, uh, and it's born out that way, you know. There's never been even a slight iota of desire for anything like that for decades and decades now. Yeah. I wasn't a very hardcore case by any means. I was, you know, pretty lightweight. But do you kind of like buy into this idea that, you know, you're going to say I'm a recovering alcoholic when you're 80 years old? Or sure. do you really feel like you can sort of be totally beyond that at a certain point, if not yeah. now? This is a, it's a tricky, tricky topic. And one I was actually writing about yesterday. So it's very timely that you bring it up. The disease of addiction is a very real disease. 
I have known people that have been sober for over 20 years mm-hmm. and they go back out and they think, you know, I've got it licked. They have one beer and then a week, a month later, they're losing everything. Yeah. You know, like it, it's just, it's a very real thing. Once you cross the line from abuse to addiction, you just can't safely use again. It's, it, right. you know, it's, that's, that's a, a scientific fact. American Medical Association recognizes it as a disease. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. The problem, I think, is that, you know, I still go to some, some meetings, um, 12-step meetings. And when I do, out of respect, if I speak, identify myself as a recovering alcoholic or addict, depending on what fellowship I go to. But I do it just out of respect for the fellowship. I think part of the problem is, and Caroline Meese talks about woundology. I love that, you know, because she says we get so wrapped up in these identities of our hurt and our pain. And that's just not addicts, but people in general that have suffered various traumas, incest, rape. And and that's not to make light of any of these things because they are extremely serious. But when we get completely wrapped up in this identity and then, you know, we, we start to get that sympathy from others and support, which is a very good thing. We need that. But we can kind of then get locked into this comfortable becoming comfortable with our discomfort in a way because we're we have these new identities and and it's comfortable to own these identities it's you know f- there's familiarity or comfort and familiarity and that stunts our healing process you know because we get locked into this identity if we really healed ourselves then the identity would be gone we're not holding on to it anymore so there was a great movie uh, or a documentary called The Anonymous People that was recently released. And I believe it's still streaming on Netflix. Uh, Greg Williams, actually from here in Connecticut, did it. And he talks about the problem, not only one of us, of people in recovery, you know, hiding anonymously, you know, behind that, but the label, I am an addict, I am an alcoholic. As I said earlier, it's tricky, you know, because I do recognize that that's something I will live with. I have, trust me, I've tried time and again to go back to that way, you know, replacing one thing for other. I'll just do marijuana, you know, I'll just smoke pot or, you know, I'll just do pills instead of drinking. Every single time it's inevitably led me back. And every time it gets worse, it's a snowball effect. Mm -hmm. So I honor that I have the disease of addiction. And I have to do what I have to do to maintain that, which for me, it's an integral recovery. I do go to some meetings still. I, you know, I, I go running. That's a big part of it. I meditate. You know, I'm, I'm active with other people in various, you know, sangha settings, things of that nature. So that that's how it is for me. I don't define myself, however, as a recovering addict. It is part of my life. But I'm not going to get wrapped up in that identity, just as I don't want to get wrapped up in the identity of a spiritual person. It's just another label. It's just another identity. You know, we're placing these things in and putting ourselves into boxes. And I'm not saying don't label yourself, do whatever you're going to do. Like, but I, I just try to live life in the awareness of these various aspects of myself and my interests, but not attached to that identity anymore. Things yeah. I appreciate and things that are important to me and I'm passionate about, but they're just things. Yeah. You're a musician. You're a skateboarder. You're, exactly. You know, you're a, a husband and a father. You're this, right. you're that. And so, you know, that's one cross you had to bear, and it was a big one, <laughs> but it's obviously it doesn't define your whole identity. Right. These are all roles I play, and I'm very happy to play them. You know, the, the father and the husband and skateboarder, all of it, like, they're all, they're all things that I am passionate about, but they're, they're roles, you know? So instead of identifying, being stuck in that role as they're happening, I do my best to come from that place of loving, witnessing awareness, you know, that's aware of what's happening. And, mm-hmm. and, and I, I fail at it often, you know, I, I do still buy into that role and I will, you know, be caught up in that. But again, you know, I will remember more frequently that I'm 
feeding into this role and, and just take a gentle step back. And with that, it's just when, when you're in that place of not identifying solely as a role, I find I'm allowed to be there in such a, a more complete way with the person. You know, my heart's more open. My mind's more open. I'm there. You know, I'm not stuck in the role that makes me see through that lens. But again, I'm not saying that that's always the case because it's, I don't want to give people the wrong idea. You know, I still play the roles and I get caught up in them. And as with everything, I keep coming back to this. I don't mean to keep repeating myself, but practice, you know, just continue to do the best I can. So how do you support yourself? You mentioned that you're the spiritual director of the sanctuary at Shepherdfields. Is that like your main? No, I, I, I do by writing. I live a very modest life. Mm-hmm. That's a volunteer thing, which I, I'm actually, as I was saying before we started, I'm moving next month up to Ottawa. To Ottawa so, yeah. yeah, Ottawa. So I will be leaving that wonderful group behind. But for three years, I've been honored to be on that board there. But really, it's writing workshops, you know, those kinds of things. So like if you write for one of these magazines or the Huffington Post or all these other things, you get paid something for it? Not all of them. Some of them you do, but not all of them. Your book had some royalties, obviously. Yeah, yeah. You Luckily, I got paid for that. And I got paid for my second book that's not out yet, but I'm working on that now. And uh, and again, the workshops and, and things of that nature. So Luckily, though, again, I just live a very modest life. My wife has a, a good job with the uh, with the government. She's a very artistic lady, and I know she'd rather be more focused on that. But you know, she has a, a good job as well. Um, but so but if she moved to Ottawa. Jobs. How's she going to do that? How's she going to do? Work oh for no, the, well work that's for the why. Government. So that's why I'm moving to Ottawa. She lives in Ottawa. With oh, she's my Canadian. Okay, she's I, Canadian. I thought she was in Connecticut with you. No, right? No, no, no. Um, and and that's a whole other story. But the long short of that is, she we met. A few years ago, you know, she was reading some of the stuff I'd been writing for various sites. And I always get really nice, or not always, but I often get really nice responses from people. And I'm always sure to respond. And we just hit it off. And uh, I remember actually the first time I ever spoke to her, I was out at Elephant Journal Conference in Estes Park. My friend Alana and I were performing Kirtan. And Mm -hmm. I called and I talked to her and I just like had this really great feeling. So we decided she's going to come visit, which she did. And we hit it off and we just kind of knew. And but what I found out was, as I mentioned earlier, I had the DUI and in Canada, they're a felony offense, which neither of us knew. I proposed, we got married. I'm giving you the very condensed version, but for the first 15 months of our marriage, I had to stay here in Connecticut and she would come down every few months to visit me because I could not cross the border with that DUI. Mm. So just about two months ago, finally, I was approved on the temporary residency permit so I can go yada, yada, yada. But ah. so moving to Canada and uh, I'm very excited to be there, but I'll still be here in the States because as I said, I do workshops and, and things of that nature. So I'll be traveling quite a bit. Cool. Yeah. I have a friend up in Ottawa who runs something called the Shunya Center, which is mm. yoga and Ayurvedic cooking and all, oh, kind, all kinds of stuff like that. I'll send you a link to it. And that, that's a shout out for the Shunya Center. Also, oh, cool. other people might. Check yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that I haven't thought to discuss with you? I feel like we've run the gamut, which is all great. I've, I've appreciated everything we've talked yeah. about. No, I mean, I think we've covered most of what's in the book, which is most of what I'm passionate about speaking about right now. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm working on my second book, which um, I'm excited about, but that's, you know, that's not coming out till next year. Can maybe reconvene at another date and talk about other things. Yeah. Well, the book was a lot of fun. As I mentioned, I read it. Uh, I didn't read all the back section where you're talking about all the different techniques because I sort of feel like I've got a pretty good toolkit. Sure. But the rest of it I read in in its entirety, which consists of 
all sorts of little short essays about things, yeah. and which are quite insightful. And it has these little, I forget what these are called, these oh, little QR codes. Yeah, yeah, QR codes where you can just pop your iPhone on there or something and listen to a, a song or whatever. So those are throughout the book. Yeah, I was really excited that they were open to doing that because I really always want to give people as much as I can. So I, you know, I add links to full interviews I had done with people in there, both video and audio. I recorded a complete album that's a free download in there. And not just through QR codes, but in the back, there's also a link there you can download it. So I was psyched that they were into doing that, you know, because it, it really, someone said to me, like, your book took me months to get through, not just be, not to read it, but to get through all the content. <laughs> right. And that made me so happy to hear because that's, I really want to give people a lot of material to work with. So. Yeah. So in terms of ways that people can kind of plug into you or you plug in with them, you could travel and give talks, I imagine, at any kind of rehab or substance abuse sort of situation, and there would be that. And you're a kirtan musician, uh, along with this Alana lady, yep. and you've played at Yoga Journal and probably some a bunch of other things, so there's that's something else people could invite you to do. Do you do any kind of individual counseling with people over Skype or anything like that? I, I haven't yet because, and I was talking to someone um, recently about that who's help, who's newly helping me with booking more events, but I was actually in school for substance abuse counseling and I dropped out just shy of getting my degree because during my internship, especially in Connecticut, it is just so much paperwork. You barely got to actually work with the clients themselves and that's what I wanted to do. So I don't it's something I'm going to revisit at some point, but you know, not being certified, it's not that I don't feel capable of doing it, but I don't know that I would necessarily want to put myself out there in that way as of right now. People often email me with questions about certain life situations. I always do my best to respond and give them whatever yeah. feedback I can. But I mean, a lot no. of people might be able to relate to you, you know, and, and even though you don't have the official credentials, might kind of be able to derive some kind of inspiration from a conversation for, with you if you have the time for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it's something I'm definitely considering doing. My schedule is pretty full though. You know, with the traveling, with getting this manuscript done, I have to have it done by November 1st. So that's mm. really time consuming. It's coming up. Um, yeah, it's right around the corner. Mm. I'll be at Sedona World Wisdom Days. I'm really excited about that in January. That's a big conference with um, Barbara Marks Hubbard will be there. Oh, cool. I'm going to interview yeah. her in a couple of weeks. Oh, great. Yeah, she's mm. tremendous. So you know, so I have plenty of stuff like that going on. So it's, uh, but yes, if anyone is interested in contacting me, all my info is on the website and, uh, and I do travel and, and do all that fun stuff. So yeah. And your website is the com, and That's I'll it. be linking to that from batgap.com. You'll have, you'll have your own page on batgap as everybody does. And, uh, well, there'll be a link to your book on Amazon, I guess. And, yeah. um, link to your website, little bio, a few other odds and ends like that. And uh, so anybody can get in touch. I imagine you'll, yeah. you'll experience a bit of the bat gap bump after this interview. Cool. I look forward to it. I, uh, <laughs> like I said, I love you know, the people you've interviewed. I'm honored to be on that list. So I'm sure your viewers, your fans, uh, I would love to connect with them. I'm sure it would resonate with the majority of them, if not all of them. So. That's great. Let me just make a couple of general concluding remarks. First of all, thanks again, Chris, for, Thank you. for this conversation. I think it really flowed. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're an easy guy to talk to. I mean, you're just appreciate kind of like a very creative, intelligent mind. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate your kind of honesty and down-to-earthness, you know? I think that's maybe something you really learned from, 
from the ordeals you went through yeah. and from the method you used to recover from those ordeals. But, yeah. you know, it serves you well and it really shows and uh, I think it will continue to serve you well. Thank you very much. I've been talking with Chris Grosso, whose name I just pronounced correctly, and uh, this is an ongoing series of interviews. There have been about 250 of them so far. You can find them all at batgap.com. There's a past interviews menu item, and if you pop that down, there's like four different ways that they're indexed. There's also a future interviews menu where you'll see the upcoming ones. There's a link to an audio podcast on each of the interview pages, so you'll see that near the bottom of Chris's interview, and a lot of people subscribe to it on iTunes. There's a donate button, which is uh, so far the sole means of support for Buddha at the Gas Pump. It enables us to devote as much time as we do to it, but we're not quite at the place of being able to devote full-time to it, which we'd like to do. I say we because my wife is also very much involved. There is a place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted, so feel free to do that. Thanks for listening or watching, and we'll see you next week. Next week will be Mukti, who, um, I'm sure it's not her only claim to fame, but happens to be, be Adya Shanti's wife, and the week after that, Barbara Marks Hubbard. So see you then. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.